So, the only thing we can know about God that God wants us to know about Him is what He's chosen to tell us in His Word. One of the main purposes for this book is it's God's plan to reveal to mankind that He exists and what He's like, what His character and His nature is like. And the series I did years ago on healing, which was quite a long series, the whole essence of it was it is critical to understand because it is a critical part of God's character and God's nature. Because people that do not believe that God does not heal, that tells them something about what they think of God. And I'll show you that in a minute. So it's vital to believe if you're going to be involved in praying for the sick, if you're going to be involved in teaching about healing, if you're going to be involved in receiving healing, to believe that it didn't understand that it is God's will to heal. So you have some people that believe it's healing's past, it's gone, it, it was died with the last disciple, even though the Bible never says that. That's man's assumption because the rate of healing went down. And one of the mistakes people make regularly is they try to understand what God's like by the experiences they have. So if I'm not experiencing something and nobody else that I know is experiencing something, I guess it's not true. So if I don't know people that have been healed, I guess God doesn't heal. Or if I know people, because the most common thing is, yeah, but so-and-so believed God and he died. I don't know why he died. But I can show you people that believe God and were dramatically healed of things you never should be healed of. So the point is you can't... God did not design us to discover what He's like by our experiences. God gave us His Word to reveal to us what He wants us to know about Him. And that's what we're going to look at. So Matthew chapter 15... There are many things we could read, but there's something that was particularly on my heart. And here's an interchange between a woman who's not a Jew and his disciples, and then Jesus. Matthew 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now that's north of Israel. So he's now moved out of Israel, and he's moved into Gentile territory. Gentiles being people that have no covenant with God. The Jews, the Hebrews have a covenant with God, which we will see an aspect of it in a few minutes. And behold, a woman of Canaan came there. So this woman, in fact, in Mark's version, she's called a Syrophoenician. She is a, she is a, a mother who is not a Jew, which means she has no covenant relationship with God, so she has no covenant standing before God, and without a covenant with God, there is no standing before Him. But she's a mother, and as we'll see, she, from that region, she cried out to Him, saying, Have mercy, O Lord, Son of David. Now that term, Lord, is kurios, which means you are Lord. You are, you are God with authority, Son of David is a reference to the Messiah. My daughter, have mercy on me. That's another message we could preach. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So what's motivating her is not theology. She's not curious about something. She's a mother whose daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now I've heard some people think that most teenage daughters are severely demon-possessed, but I don't believe that's true. Just some. 
And it goes, go on. And he answered, now just watch the dynamics here. So here's a woman, she's not a Jew, she has no covenant with God, but she's a mother worried about her daughter, and she sees something in this rabbi that she calls Lord that is her hope. Now watch her determination. He answered her, not a word. Isn't that rude? I thought Jesus was compassionate. Well, he is. I thought Jesus just answered everybody. Now, we'll see what's going on here. He answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. In other words, she's bugging us. She's in our way. She has no right to be here. She has no right to be talking to you. Why are you even entertaining her? Give us permission to kick her out of church. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Stay there a second. I want to explain that one. Jesus knew what his mission was. He was sent, the Messiah was promised to and sent first to the covenant children of Israel. In fact, if you look at Mark's version of this, which is in chapter 7, he says, I'm sent first to Israel. So this is not just Jesus being mean. This is not just Jesus, because he's going to say some things that sound harsh to her. But Jesus is recognizing that his call is first of all to preach the gospel to Israel. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse, next verse. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She's crying out out of a need. And we saw in a verse earlier, she's appealing to his mercy. If you don't ever feel like you've got a right to ask God for something, ask him for his mercy. Have you ever made the same, done the same thing wrong over and over and over and over? and over and over. Am I the only one? Well, thank you. (laughs) Because sometimes I think I am. And when I've done it the over and over and over again, and I want to come back and ask God's forgiveness and ask God's help, it happened just the other day. I shared that with my wife. There was something I needed to ask God's help for, and I didn't have confidence because the other day before, I hadn't been as faithful as I, not unfaithful to her, but never, hadn't been quite the faithful Christian in my thinking and my speaking that I had intended to be. Let's put it that way. Sometimes Sunday, well, I won't go there. Um, And so I I went to him and I realized I I don't have any confidence to ask you. And then I wrote, but I can come to you in mercy. If you ever get to that place, read Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is about God's compassion. And it talks about a different group of people that messed up and got themselves in trouble and cried out to God and God sent His loving kindness to rescue them. Psalm 107. It does it over and over and over again. His mercies are new every morning. So she, I don't know, how did I get off on that? She came and worshipped and said, Lord, oh, she's just crying out. She's not going to deal with the theology. She said, I don't care who you were sent to. 
I don't need to understand your covenant and the covenant dispensations and why my daughter's in trouble and I need help. Have mercy on her, on me. Lord, help me. And here's his compassionate answer. He said, it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. He called her a dog. Jesus? Well, you have to understand something. He's Actually, that word, literally one word means a small, diminutive dog, like Molly. Dip, 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 you know, just. But dog in the Bible is, is actually a reference to unbelievers. There's a verse in, somewhere in, in Revelation where it talks about in the end days that the dogs will be out eating out of the garbage heaps. In other words, they're the ones that didn't make it. They're the people that didn't make it into heaven. So dog really is referring to somebody that's not part of the family. It's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to dog. To take what's intended for God's people and to give it to someone that's not God's person. That's what he's saying here. Next verse. She doesn't accept that. This is Jesus saying, I'm not going to do anything because you don't qualify. She's not stopped by that. She said, yes, Lord. She agrees with him. But even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Next verse. And Jesus answered and said, O woman, great is your faith. That word great in in Greek is mega, from which we get mega bucks. We get mega gulp. We get mega is a Greek word for enormous. And it's the only person in the New Testament that Jesus ever uses that word for their faith. In fact, there's only one other person that I know of where he said they had great faith, and that's not a Jew either. That's a Roman officer, the centurion. And he uses a different word for grace there. So Jesus calls this, calls this great faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. Your, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. Her daughter was healed from that very hour. What I want to look at is verse 26. Go back to verse 26. He answered and said, now what she asked for, she's asked for Jesus to heal her daughter, and Jesus said it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus equates healing with children's bread. And as I'm meditating on that, that's a term of tremendous significance. Because what is bread? Bread in the Bible represents food that's necessary necessary to live. Notice he didn't say it's good to take the children's donuts. It's good to take the children's lollipops. It's good. No, bread is always referred to some, it's an essential element for life. When Jesus introduces communion to them, He tells to take the bread, this is my body which is broken for you. 
This is the bread of life. In fact, let's go look at... Um, well, let's stop a second. So bread represents something that's an, an essential food for living. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a surplus thing. It's not an extra thing. It's not a luxury. It's something we need every day. Basic food. Bread represents basic food that's needed every day. Put the verse back up again. Just keep it up there. But notice it's the children's bread. So Jesus is using the symbol of a family meal. And what he's saying to you is you're not part of the family so you don't get to eat at the table what's fed to the family. That's what he's saying. But think about children's bread. Well, if they're children, then there are parents that have provided the bread. So we don't ever think of feeding bread to a child as some unnecessary luxury that may, because the parents decide, you know, I like you today, so I think I'll give you some food today, but tomorrow you may not have acted well, so I'm not going to feed you tomorrow. No, feeding your children is part, listen carefully, is part of a parent's responsibility as a good parent. In fact, Paul to Timothy says if a parent does not provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. So parents have a responsibility before God to feed their children the least the very basics that are needed for health and proper nutrition. So what Jesus is equating here is healing is something that's an obligation of a loving father to provide to his children. We're talking about whether this is God's will to heal. And Jesus is saying, it's a father's responsibility to provide for his children. Now let's look at some other scriptures to talk about that. Therefore, the children are entitled to be fed bread. In all the times we had our children living with us and growing up, and we fed them. My wife was very good at feeding, providing the food for them, and fixing the food for them. So together we provided the food. And I paid for it and she bought it and fixed it. So it worked well. I never ever had them cry out and say, God, oh, Father, thank you for feeding us today. We didn't know whether you were going to feed us today. They sat down at the table as if they had a right to be there and a right to expect to be fed. And I wasn't offended by that. Who do you think you are? Or your children. Oh, yeah, okay. They have a right to be fed, to expect to be fed, because it's part of being a child in that family, is that the parents' responsibility is to feed their children. And Jesus calls healing. Not some theologian, not some Bible scholar. Jesus calls it children's bread. Now let's look at what that means when we apply that. Jesus is saying that children are entitled to expect their father to provide what they need for life. And in this case it's healing. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. The Lord showed me this a few months ago as I was meditating on healing. 1 
First John chapter three. I'm on John. Well, put it up there. I'll I'll do it from there. We know by this we know love. Now John is talking here about love and that we're to walk in love, the kind of love God with which God loved us. We know love because he laid down his life for us. We ought to also lay our lives down for the brethren. So this is, we're emulating God's love for us by loving one another this way. Verse 17, and this is how it's acted out. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So John is saying something which is basically obvious. If you're my brother or my sister and you have no food or you have no clothing and I have in my possession what you need and I don't give it to you, I have the means to meet your need, how is that what the love of God is like? And I was meditating on that a few months ago. Wait a minute. If that's true of me, how much more has to be true of God? How can we say God loves us if He has the ability to heal us and we have the need of healing and He withholds it from us? And yet He's telling us not to withhold from one another if we have the means to meet one another's needs and yet they're teaching God withholds it from us. That can't be true. Because it's, He's using this as an example of what God's love is like. I'll show you another version of it. It's in James chapter 3. 2, excuse me, James chapter 2, verse 14. What profit, he's talking about faith here. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? In other words, he said, I believe, but he doesn't act what he believes. Can that faith save him? Verse 16. 15, excuse me. If a brother, and here's the example. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, keep going, and one of you says, Brother, depart and be in peace, warm and be filled, I'll pray for you, be blessed. But you don't give him the things that are needed for the body, what does that profit? What does that profit? Verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James is saying the same principle. Our intentions aren't good enough. If you have the means to meet somebody's need and you withhold it, that's not love. Now if God is expecting that of us, then it must be something He's already doing for us. So for God to withhold the children's bread, something that we're entitled to because we're His children, then God's not living up to the standard He's holding us to. There's another verse that there won't, I didn't give them, I didn't think of it until now, they won't have it to put up there. But Romans 8.32 says, if he spared not his own son, I got healed on this verse years ago. If he spared not his own son, didn't hold back his own son, but delivered him up from us all, then how will he not also, together with him, freely give us all things? That verse is saying, God has, is holding back nothing that he has for us. So he's not holding healing back. In fact, 
we'll learn down the road, you're already healed. God's already given it. So when we think we have to get God to heal us, that's wrong thinking. God's already provided healing. We'll see that a little later on. We just have to receive it. But you won't receive it if you don't believe it's given, and you won't believe it's given if you don't believe He wants to give it to you. All right, so let's move on. So with that as a background, let's go back and look at the children's bread. Let's go to Exodus 15. We're looking at what God's like. What's His character? What's His nature? What are His desires? What's His will? Exodus 15. Israel has just come out of Egypt. They've just been delivered through, through the, the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's been destroyed. They've come out into the wilderness. They ran out of water. So they found a brook. They went to drink of it. And the brook is, 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 uh, is brackish. It's sour. It's bitter. And so Moses cries out to God. God says, take that rock rod, throw it in the water. And the water turns sweet and they drink it. And after that, God makes this covenant with them. And by the way, this is the very first covenant. This is the very first thing about Himself God reveals to His children once they've been brought out of bondage. The first thing God wants them to know about Himself. If you will diligently heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ears to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. That literally says in Hebrew, I'm your physician. I am is your healer. I'm your doctor. I am your healer. The first thing he wanted them to know. So now let's go over to uh, chapter 23, verse 25. He's just recited for them some instructions. He said, I'm going to lead you into the land... And he said, what's going to happen is, I'm going to send an angel before you, which is his, his, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I'm going to guide you, and you're to, as I go in, as you go in there, you're not to bow and receive any of the foreign gods of the nations where I'm going to take you. And so when he says, so shall you serve, that's what he's referring to. You shall follow my presence... And when I defeat a nation, and you, inter- you shall not interact with the people so that you receive their gods and bow to their gods. In other words, you shall keep me first in your heart. So you shall serve the Lord your God. Look at this. He will bless your bread and your water. So instead of you blessing your food, God wants to bless your food. He will bless your bread and your water and I will take or remove sickness away from the midst of you. He didn't say, those that come from in, that are the tribe of Ephraim, I'll take sickness away from you, but you from Manassas know you've got to be sick. He's talking to every one of them. So if you were a, a Hebrew, God had made a covenant promise... I will remove sickness from your midst. That was God's will for them. That generation failed to do what God said, so they could not enter the promised land. 
So what God says to them, which was basically what they said, you're going to wander 40 years in the wilderness until everyone 20 years and older would dies off, and only those that were not born in Egypt, when they're mature, I will take them into the promised land. So now we fast forward 39 years, and the second generation's on the verge of entering the promised land, and in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses rehearses for this younger generation what the older generation went through, so they're prepared to not make the same mistakes. And so we'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is part of that instruction. Then it shall come to pass, so this is to the next generation. He's renewing this promise. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which He swore to your fathers. We just read it. Verse 13. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, that's your children. That's something you can pray over your kids. The fruit of your land your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle. In other words, God will bless you and prosper you in the land which He swore, look, to your fathers to give you. So He's doing this to fulfill a covenant He made with your fathers. Actually, if we read a little before this, He said, I'm not doing this because you're more or better people. I'm doing this to fulfill a covenant I made with your fathers. Verse 14. So you shall be blessed above all the people. You, there shall not be one male or female barren among you. There's a scripture to stand on if you're having trouble having children. Or among your livestock, verse 15, and the Lord will take away from you A-L-L sickness. All sickness. And will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases with the Egyptians which you've known, but lay all those on those who hate you. I'm not going there and what that means. So God renews his healing covenant with the next generation. So for Israel, God clearly established with them that he was their physician, he was their healer, and that it was his plan and his will to remove sickness from their midst. Remember, sickness was never God's idea. There was no sickness in the Garden of Eden. If you want to know God's perfect will, there are three places to look in the Bible. Number one is in the garden before man messed it up. Because there you have God's perfect design, unaffected by sin or sickness, by, by Satan or by man, fallen man. The second place to look is when God came to the earth and put on flesh. And we're going to look at that Him in just a minute. That's at Jesus. And the third place to look is when God recreates it all over again in the end. In none of those cases is there sickness. In fact, what we're going to see in Jesus' case, He removed sickness. And we'll see the conditions under which He did it. So now let's look at Now we're going to look at Jesus. God, the Word became flesh. Psalm 107.20, God sent His Word and healed them. God, God Himself takes on flesh, John 1.14, and walks among us. And we beheld His glory. Jesus, when, Jesus was, when Jesus walked on the earth, listen carefully, He was that bread from heaven. John 6, verse 30. 
Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. Jesus just said, You're only following me because I feed you. You're not following me because you believe in who I am. You're following me, and a lot of Christians are following because of what they're getting from Him. Most assuredly, I say to you, so they're saying, our fathers ate manna or bread in the wilderness. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. Moses didn't give that to you. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Remember what bread represents? What's necessary for life. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world, obviously referring to himself. Then they said to Lord, give us this bread always. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now remember Jesus said, called healing, physical healing, the bread, the children's bread. And now he said, I am that bread for you. He gave physical healing to everyone who came to him for it. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus, actually in the Greek it says, was, was going about. So this refers to his his, I meditated on this for a long time years ago because what I began to realize is all we have in the Gospels are little glimpses of what he did over those three and a half years. John writes at the end, if, if I wrote, I've only picked these incidents out so that you may believe who he is, but if I wrote down everything he ever did, the books of the world couldn't contain all the things that he did. So all we have is little insights, and this is one of those insights to what his general practice was. And Jesus was going about, is what it says, in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching, or literally that means proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. Now look at that. What Jesus did predominantly, there are 19 specific instances in the Gospels of Jesus healing an individual or certain individuals. But he healed far more people than that. Now go back to verse 23. So what this has said, his, his normal practice of his ministry was to do what? was to teach in their synagogues, and pro in his teaching, he was preaching, means proclaiming, the gospel's good news. He was proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and part of the good news of the kingdom is he was removing sickness from their midst. Now, he didn't just wave a wand and remove all sickness from everybody. We're gonna see, they had to come to him and ask him, now go on to verse 24. And his fame went throughout all Syria, that's not Israel, and they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, epilep those people, paralytics, and he healed them. 
Let's go over to chapter 9, verse 35. Same thing. Now what's happened in between is Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount, and then in chapter 8, He's healed three different people. He's healed the leper, He's healed the centurion's servant, and He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. So Jesus is very compassionate. And now after all of these things, and then he heals them, he says, and he went about all the cities, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. When I did this series years ago, I did, a, I, I, I did an imagining. Imagine you were in one of these crowds. There was an old, Ed, I think it was Edward R. Murrow show, because you were there. And you, he would take you back to a scene and imagine you were there. And, and we would imagine we were one in the, among the sea of this multitude that was sitting there when he was, when he was preaching the kingdom of God. And then it says, and he healed everyone that was sick. So if you were in that crowd and you were sick, you got healed. So it wasn't that he said, okay, listen, I'm going to heal you. It's not God's will to heal you. God's will is for you to wait. Um, no, if you were there and you asked for healing, you were healed. In fact, the greatest proof to me of what God's will is, there is not one instance of someone asking Jesus to be healed and Him saying no or saying wait. And I'm not going to go through the Scriptures, but there are many where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only do what I see my Father do. So whatever Jesus did was the will and the character of God. That's Hebrews 1.3. He's the outshining of His glory and the exact representation of His Father's nature. So Jesus, whatever Jesus did, is a mirror into the nature and character of God. And He never said no. In fact, there were people that got healed that he didn't even know were asking for it. The woman with the issue of blood, she just touched his garment. And he said, your faith made you well. Nowhere does he ever say, my power made you well. Nowhere does he say, I made you well. Your faith made you well. The power was there. The will of God was present to heal them. But they had to reach out and receive it. In fact, the end of Matthew 14 says that they came, a multitude came, because they believed that if they touched his garment, they would be made well. That's what they believed. But the next verse says, and those that touched his garment were made well. So a large crowd believed, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. But only those who acted on it received from him. But the will of God to heal was there for all. In fact, in, in, uh, in Matthew 9 earlier, Jesus is in a house, and it says, the power of God to heal was present. So the power, God's will to heal, was there for everyone. The only one got healed is the man that was brought in on a stretcher, and cl- whose friends lowered him down through the roof. And he's the only one in the crowd that received it. But the power and the will of God was there to heal everyone. Because it's the children's bread. It's the loving provision of a loving father who wants to take care of us and provide what we need in this life as well as for 
the next life. We've got to move on quickly. All right. Anyone could come to Him and receive from the heart of the Father to remove sickness from our midst. All right, that's great for them. So if you lived on the earth in the three and a half years that Jesus was in public ministry and you were sick and all you had to do is to get to where He was and either touched you, spoke to you, got in that crowd, you knew you'd be healed. That's great for them. But what about us? Does God just not care about us? I mean, that's basically what a good part of the church believes. God cared about them, but He cares about us more because He doesn't provide this for us now. It's when we get to heaven. I don't understand how that's better. Especially if you're lying in a hospital suffering. So what did God do? Well, let's find out what God's provision was. Isaiah 53. Verse 4. Now this great chapter is the greatest Old Testament prophecy into what the Messiah was to come to do, which was to suffer, bear our sin and the penalty for our sin for us. Surely, the New King James says, and the King James says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But you have to understand something. The word griefs there is a Hebrew word that in almost every other place in the Old Testament is translated pains. And the word sorrows is a Hebrew word that every other place in the New Testament where it appears is translated sickness. And many other Hebrew translations, Isaac Lesser's translation, uh, Young's literal translation, literal translations of the Old Testament, and there are others, the Testament, surely he has borne our pains and carried our sicknesses. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the suffering for our peace. That's our soul. So he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our sin. So he bore his suffering for our sins. He was chastised for our, so that we might have peace. He took our dispeace to give us his peace. And by his stripes we were healed. But pastor, that means spiritual healing. Well, first of all, you have to understand that that separation of physical healing from spiritual healing was a Greek concept, not a Hebrew's concept. The Greek's mind divided concepts, things into different concepts and and compartments. The, The Hebrew minds and the Hebrew language didn't do that. I had a, Jew, uh, a Jewish partner as a lawyer who was a devout Jew and he, was, he, was a, he, was, he knew his Hebrew. And I, I asked him about this word. In fact, the, the word healed is rafa. And I said, that word means healed. Does that mean just spiritual healing? He said, no, no. To the Jewish mind, if, you're not, if your part of you is not whole, you're not whole. So if you bought a car and they only gave you three tires, that car's not whole. You know that, they know that, but a theologian can't figure that out. But we have greater proof than that. We have greater proof than that. Matthew eight sixteen. Now, I just said, what goes before this, Jesus just 
healed a leper of terminal leprosy, a physical disease. He just healed the centurion's servant of paralysis, a physical disease. He just healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, a physical disease. And so after he heals his mother-in-law, when evening come, they brought to many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Verse 17 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, referring back to Isaiah 53, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. This is the Holy Spirit's interpretation of what those words, pains and sufferings meant. It's sicknesses and diseases. Jesus bore them. And you can understand that now when you go back to the Father's character under the Old Testament. His plan and will was to remove sickness from the midst of His people and give His children the bread of healing that they needed to be whole. Now what that means for us today, we can't go to Jesus in the temple or in the synagogue in Galilee where he's preaching and healing those that are sick. We can't go out into the Galilean hills where he's ministering to people and go up to him and have him touch us or spit on us or speak to us or whatever he did. We can't go there, but we can go to the cross because what God provided for everyone that was born, every child of God after that, and even those that aren't, is that we can't go to Jesus, but Jesus came to us on the cross. On the cross, God fulfilled the promise, the covenant promise He made to Israel. And now because you're in Christ, you are part of that covenant. Because we are all children of God. We are all, Galatians says, we are all sons of Abraham through Christ Jesus. So we can go to the cross to receive healing the Father's bread, the children's bread, with the same confidence and assurance we would have had if we were here on earth 2,000 plus years ago and we went up to Jesus in the fields of Galilee. And we know that he, would never, he never turned anyone away. So why would He pick you and turn you away? So what happens is when someone doesn't get healed, we assume it's because it wasn't God's will. Why? Because that's the easy out. We blame it on God. I guess it wasn't God's will. But think about this. How can you pray with confidence for somebody to be healed if you don't know for sure if it's God's will to heal them? Well, it's God's will to heal some and it's not God's will to heal others. Then how do you know the person you're praying for is one of the ones that's God's will to heal? Because if you don't, you're just throwing that prayer up in hope and the Bible's clear, hope isn't enough. You have to have believe you received when you prayed. You've got to believe it's done when you prayed. And you can't do that if you don't have assurance that it was God's will for that person to be healed. And the Bible is very clear. God wants us to pray with confidence and assurance. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have before Him. If we ask anything that's in accordance with His will... We know He hears us. It's kind of like when Jesus said at Lazarus' tomb, Father, I know You always hear me. 
He had a confidence that his father always heard him, and therefore I know I have what I say. Well, John says the same thing. This is the confidence we have before him. Why? Because we're in Christ. We're in the one who has that same confidence. It's not your standing before God or my standing before God. It's Christ standing before God. And because you're in Him, you have His standing before God, otherwise known as His righteousness. But what happens is we lack confidence because we look at ourselves. So we can now go to the cross to receive from Him just as we, they could go to Him in person while He walked on the earth. But here's it. Not everybody that was sick around him was healed. It was those that went... Now, we don't know in the crowds what happened. But in those 19 incidences, it was those that came and asked him. And the interesting thing is he always responded based on what they believed. The centurion comes and says to him... I've been meditating on this. It's an amazing story. A Roman officer, I gotta be careful with the time, a Roman officer, most likely in his uniform. You know, we've all seen the movies with the red robe and the shiny brass, uh, breastplate and the, the sheaves and, the, and, the, and the, the sandals. And he may have had his helmet, could have come in on a horse. And you imagine if Jesus was, this was in Capernaum, if Jesus was in some crowd and a Roman officer showed up, they're gonna part the way for him. And he comes up to Jesus. And there's some evidence that this man was known because in, in one of the other accounts it says that, that, he had, that he had built church synagogues. So he comes up to Jesus and he pleads with him. He says, my servant is lying at home, sick with a palsy, suffering grievously. And before he can get the next words out, Jesus stands up and says, I'll come and heal him. And don't let me wonder, wait a minute. Jesus is saying, I will come and heal the servant of a Roman officer. Remember where the Romans are? They're occupying the Jews' country. They're hated by the Jews. And there are evidences all around them that they are here to keep them in bondage and to tax them. And normally they're hated. And here a Roman officer comes asking for healing, and this is a for his servant. Not one of his soldiers, but his servant. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And, 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 and the, so, the, the, the officer basically says, stops him. And says, no. Now this is kind of my amplified version. He says, he says I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So he's stopping him. Because Jesus said, I will come under your roof and I will heal him. And the servant says, no. The soldier says, no. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But what he's really saying is you have no need to come. Because the next thing he says is, only say a word and my servant will be healed. And then he explains why. He says, because I'm also a man under authority. The key word there is also. He's saying, I recognize something about you. Because like you, I'm a man under authority. So he recognized that Jesus was someone under somebody else's authority. He says, like you, I'm someone under authority and I have soldiers under me. So I am somebody under authority and I am someone 
in authority. So the authority I'm under flows through me to those that are under me. And then the evidence that I'm in authority is I say to a soldier, go, I say a word, and he does it. I say to another soldier, come, and he comes. In other words, when I say a word, it's carried out. That's the evidence of authority. They don't debate it. They don't figure out the theology of it. They just do it because I said so. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus stopped. He turned to the crowd who was with him. I would love to see what this looked like. And it says he marveled. Can you imagine getting Jesus to marvel at you? Go, whoa. There was only one other place where he marveled, but it was at the unbelief in his own hometown. I just, I can't understand this one. Jesus was always frustrated with unbelief. And now he sees somebody go, whoa. Now look at this. Jesus was willing to go do a physical act as evidence of the healing. And the centurion saying, I don't need to see you lay hands on my servant. All I need you to do is speak a word. And Jesus called that great faith and said, in fact, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel, the children to whom this bread is entitled. So the two people we've looked at tonight that had great faith that Jesus marveled at, none of them were children of the covenant, were entitled to the children's bread, and yet he gave it to them because they came and called upon him in faith. And then Jesus says to him at the end, Go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. He said to the woman with the issue of blood, Let it be done as your faith has made you well. Over and over again, what you believe, the way you believe it, that's how I've done it. So God's not, we're not waiting on God. God's waiting on us. Then why am I not received it? Well, have you met the conditions? You must ask in faith. Well, I believe, well, do you? Because we're going to look at this down the road on Sunday. Not, maybe not this Sunday. But Jesus talks about believing with the heart. Most of us believe with our head. We believe in healing. We intellectually agree with what God's Word says. But that's not faith. Faith comes out of the heart, not out of the head. Jesus said, if you believe with your heart and say with your mouth, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. If you believe in your, and not doubt in your heart, it's all about what's put in your heart and what comes out of your heart. And I'm getting ahead of a message I'm going to do in two weeks on Sunday. Because what you put in your heart is what will come out of your heart. So if it's not coming out of your heart, you're not putting it in your heart enough. That's not God's fault. That's my fault. If I starve to death in the United States, in Barrington, Rhode Island, it's my fault. Because there's plenty of food around. Right? Healing is here. God's brought it. It's the children's bread. It's the right 
It's the responsibility of a responsible, loving father to serve to his children what they need to sustain their life here so that they can finish his purpose. It's their bread. It's not their dessert. It's not an appetizer. It's not some special meal that's only given on certain days. It is their daily bread that a child of God is entitled to take and to receive. But for so many of us, we leave it sitting on the table because we either don't know that it's there, we don't think we're entitled to take it, or we're not sure whether he's put it there for us. Maybe he put it there for my brother or my sister, but I'm not sure he put it there for us. I'll cut the close with the story. When I was dating Anita, I took her to my house for the first time, my, mother, my mother's house for the first time, and we had five boys. And my wife was the oldest of two girls where everything was prim and proper. The meal was served in nice dishes and everything was nice and orderly. That's not how our food was served. It was put out on family plates and she sat down with me and my mother put the food out and my four brothers devoured it in front of her in a matter of moments. They had no doubt whether it was theirs to eat. They had no doubt whether they were entitled to eat it or not because their parents provided the food and put it on the table and they freely ate. My wife was in shock. She just went, I've never seen anything like that. My mother was embarrassed and went and fixed a separate meal just for her because there was nothing there. It was all gone. They, had, they never had a girl sit at the world, five boys. They would not, you wouldn't know what to do with her and so they just did what they normally do. It's our food <laughs> because it's, it's the children's bread. Whenever my wife serves our children when they come home, she wants them to eat more. It blesses a mother that's prepared the food for her children to take it and to enjoy it. And it blesses our Father for the bread of healing that He's provided for us, for us to partake of it and enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, Many of us have obstacles to believing this, whether it's traditions we've been taught, whether it's failed attempts to believe you, whether it's things other people have told us. Maybe it's people dear to us that have died and we don't understand why. And Lord, we just give those questions, unanswered questions up to you. And all we know to do is to go back to your word and ask you to help us. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that because it's a gift from you, there's no condemnation that goes with it. There's no law. It's given out of your love for us, not out of an obligation or out of a pressure. It's the free gift of a loving Father who's touched with the feeling of what we go through. Help us to learn to receive so that we can learn to give. And we thank you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.